Hello and welcome to Account Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture we're going to branch out and talk a bit about economics. At the end of this we will be able to define what economics is, discuss why we should learn economics. We're going to talk about microeconomics, we're going to talk about macroeconomics, the two major categories of economics, and then we're going to talk about some basic economic principles that will be applied as we th think forward through economics. All right, economic def uh, definition. There's a bunch of different definitions. We can define it many different ways, but I do want to point out that economics is a social science, meaning similar to psychology, similar to sociology, we're studying human behavior, how, many, how people behave within markets, how groups of people behave, like companies and governments, how they would behave, and seeing what that behavior would be. Now, most people, when they think about economics, they want to know the behavior of <laughs> the stock market. And the stock market is, of course, driven by people, and therefore it does give indications about human behavior with choices within the stock market and indications of those choices. The study of economics, however, is going to be a lot broader than just the study of the market. We are studying the idea of the utilization of resources, so we're often looking at decision-making processes in terms of resources that people can consume and industries can consume and governments can consume. So we're looking at the consumption of the resources. Many times when people hear that, however, they just think about resources in terms of spending money, receiving goods and services. And that is included, but again, economics is broader than that in a lot of times because there's going to be factors in the costs other than just the exchange of money and the goods and services. And those factors can include things like time. So the time it takes for us to go and make a transaction can also be included in our decision-making process. And you can see that if we include time and the opportunity cost, which we'll discuss later in terms of every decision, we'll see that every decision has a cost. And therefore, every decision really has some economics behind it. And we can apply a lot of our economic models to many of these intuitive type of decisions that we make. Why should we learn economics? Like a science, economics is a study of how the world works. And therefore, it can be better applied to how we can work within the world. A science is going to be an observation of the world and how the world works. We're observing to see the truth about how things happen and why things basically happen in the physical universe. So when we think about something like gravity, obviously we already intuitively knew that a rock will fall to the ground. Everybody knew that before we really studied gravity, really understood something like gravity. But if we get the principles of gravity down and we understand it better, then we can apply those principles in different ways to both decisions related to gravity and things that gravity is affected to and uh, maybe those principles to other things as well. The same can be true with decision making. A lot of our decision making might be intuitive. It is intuitive. However, if we look at that intuitive decision and can break down into why we make those intuitive decisions, then maybe we can make those intuitive decisions better. And if we make larger decisions, we can think about when our intuitive decisions break down and therefore we can look for those problems and then make better decisions when those better decisions are needed. Economics can help us understand human behavior. So when we're looking at how other people will react, how are we going to interact with other people? What will other people do? Economics can give us some idea of what other people will do, what their thinking process is, or what their intuitive decision making will produce oftentimes. It also helps us understand our own behavior, of course, in terms of what our intuitive decision making process is and when we might want to have some more formal decision-making process. Intuitive decisions may not work as well in certain situations. For example, when we have larger type of situation, we're making larger decisions, then we oftentimes will want to apply some more formal processes in order to avoid some pitfalls that could happen with just intuitive decision-making. 
Also, it helps us understand uh, group behaviors, such as by companies and governments. So economics on an individual level, we'll have the study of individuals. We can also apply that behavior, what the behavior will be by companies within certain economies and about the government in terms of what governments will behave, how they will behave, and possibly how they should behave, what policies should be put in place. And that leads us, of course, to politics. So especially macroeconomics, we're going to have a lot of political topics. There, we'll hear a lot of things like the, the labor rate, the unemployment rate, and interest rates and gross domestic product and these types of things will come up in this area and those of course are going to be tied really closely to political decisions so it can give us an idea of molding our political decisions and what our political decisions should be based on an economic theory so microeconomics what is microeconomics what is macroeconomics those are the two categories of economics we have the microeconomics we got macroeconomics so the microeconomics is the study of the individual choice and behavior in individual markets so we're talking about within the markets, obviously micro means smaller. So we're talking about within those markets and how those individuals within a certain market will react based on the markets could be different. How will people react within those different markets? How will companies react within those different markets? On the macro side, we're talking about behavior of national economics and policies. It includes things like unemployment rate and uh, the value of the national output. So these are going to be the bigger key items in terms of how we are acting on the larger scale and also how should we act possibly. What should the policies be for the best outcome, meaning what type of policies will have the lowest unemployment rate for a macro policy, for a political policy. So some of the ideas within economics. First idea is scarcity. Scarcity meaning that there's unlimited wants and there's going to be limited resources. This is going to be the basic principle of much of economics, meaning that our desires for things is basically unlimited. People's income go up and they tend to be able to suspend the higher income without too much of a problem. However, the resources, although resources have gone up a lot, there's not possible that the resources go up enough to uh, fill everybody's uh, needs or wants or desires. And that's going to be a problem of choice. That's going to lead us to, to have to make choices in terms of what we choose to consume and what we choose not to consume. So that choice is driven by the fact that there is scarcity. When we think about the idea of resources, we often think about natural resources like oil and things and water and things like that. And note that when we think about the resources that we are the end product, they're also going to include things like labor. So, for example, when we have a resource like oil, of course, there's a, there is a limited amount of oil and we have to think about the scarcity related to, to oil. But obviously oil in and of itself is not something that we normally would just want to consume. We would have to process it through to something like gas or some other types of products and then distribute those resources. So note, when we're talking about the resources out there, we also have to take into consideration the labor that's going to be put in the, into the resource in order for it to, to be distributed. And as, of course, we get more efficient with certain types of things in terms of labor, we can grow how much resources are out there, but we will never have the resources out there enough to fill everybody's needs. So cost-benefit analysis, that's what's being led to, is a cost-benefit analysis. That's going to be our basic principle for the economic principle. We're going to be measuring, we're going to assume that people are going to be measuring costs versus benefits. Now again, most people when they do this, they don't basically put a spreadsheet down and do every calculation when they get out of bed in the morning and say, should I go to work today or something and break out the cost versus the benefits. But they do make an intuitive calculation in terms of how they should is it worth it to go to work this morning or not? So although those are going to be intuitive decision making, we're assuming in a formal sense that there is some form of cost benefit analysis. And of course, the idea is that 
the benefits are greater than the cost, we're going to do the thing that has the best cost-benefit analysis. When we hear the term costs and benefits, we often think about the idea of the cost being dollar amounts. And note that there's also other things involved in the cost. We've talked about time being involved in the cost. We talked about the, uh, something else being given up in terms of the cost. So just note that there's other things within the cost other than just dollars. And from an economic standpoint, that's the hard thing to measure. That's the problem with social sciences, with the social science of economics many times is that we're trying to measure things that don't always have the defined cost. Money is great because it's a great measuring tool for a lot of things, but it doesn't measure everything. And when we think about economics as a whole, we want to measure a lot of some of these other things that do have costs to us. They're just not dollar amount costs. So economic models. What is an economic model? Like anything, it's going to be a simplification of the world. We're going to have, we're going to say this is going to be a simplified model of the world. If we, if we talked about the world itself and we had the globe, that globe is a simplification of the world. Why do we have it there? Because it tells us something about the world that uh, we can get from the simplified model. It's not going to be a replica of the world because then it would be the world and that would be too hard to deal with. So we have to simplify it down and put a model together. We're going to make similar models in uh, economics as well. So we do that within science a lot of times. If we talk about physics, then we often have simplified models of the world within physics. For example, if we were trying to calculate or figure out how the rotation of the moon goes around the earth, then we might do some mathematical calculation. I don't know how the mathematical calculation would go, but I'm pretty sure that they're going to, in order to do the calculation, say that the moon is like perfectly round and the earth is perfectly round. And we know that that's not the case. We know that the moon is not perfectly round and we know that earth is not perfectly round. And so physics, when we talk about larger scale physics, always has this problem or is criticized sometimes for making these oversimplified assumptions. But we need to make some assumptions in order to come up with an analysis that tells us something about the world. And if it tells us something that's relevant about the world, if we look at that model and it gives us something that we knew now that we didn't know before, then it's generally a pretty good model. Within a model, we're going to isolate certain things. So if we talked about smaller physics projects, if we we're talking about measuring gravity and we're trying to see what the gravity is on a feather and does it really drop at the same rate as a rock, if we took it into the lab and we removed the air, air around it, then we would say, uh, conduct that model and we would eliminate certain factors. Same thing's going to be applied with economics. Now, of course, economics is going to be a lot more difficult to eliminate certain factors. Therefore, we're going to have to rely oftentimes on thought mod models and logical reasoning and different types of tests in order to prove those models. One of the assumptions that we start off with, or a couple assumptions that we usually start off with within our models, is that people make rational decisions and people have all the information they need in order to make that rational decision. Now again, in real life, of course, we know that this isn't always the case. People do not always make rational decisions and they don't always have the information. That would be like in a perfect world that we have that assumption. But if we make that assumption, it does give us some predictive power about human, be human behavior and it's a good place to start with. It's a good place to build the model so that we make that prediction. So we're going to say that people, when they do their cost-benefit analysis, they do that to perfect cost-benefit analysis. They're, they're able to know what all the costs are. They have all the information of the costs. And when we're measuring things about like different types of costs, like the time value versus money value, we're able to somehow make that exchange in order to have a relevant cost-benefit analysis. That's going to be the core principles that we're going to start off with in, in our models in order to make those predictions about behaviors. Now, we know that there's going to be problems oftentimes that people have when they are doing their cost-benefit analysis. There's going to be certain problems that we are well aware of 
when our analysis breaks down, especially when we're doing that intuitive process of making decisions. And these are things that we want to be aware of and we want to be considered both when our, in our model and in our personal decision making. One of those things is going to be the opportunity cost. So as we've said before, opportunity cost, everything has a cost. So the idea that everything has a cost doesn't necessarily mean that everything has a dollar amount cost. That's not what is meant, at least when economic, economists say that everything has a cost. Usually that cost is oftentimes the, the opportunity cost. For example, if we had a movie ticket and it was free a free movie to go to a movie, then the cost would be free in terms of dollar amounts. But if the only time for that movie was also happened to be at the same time as a birthday party that we were supposed to go to, then there's an opportunity cost. So the dollar amount's not there, but there is an opportunity cost. Something has to be given up in order to go to the free movie. That is the opportunity cost. So every, every choice we make has that opportunity cost. And some of those opportunity costs are things that we don't often see. We just miss them when we make our decision-making process. Another one is going to be sunk costs. So in economics, we're often going to say this going forward. We need to make decisions on the margin, meaning we need to, we need to measure the costs and the benefits going forwards and not be sunk down by the costs that happened in the past. So, for example, if we had a project that we put a lot of money into, and we're trying to see if we should continue with the project from here going forward, we need to consider relevant costs and benefits here going forward. How much more is it going to cost here going forward? And what are going to be the benefits here going forward? And not be taken down by the, the costs in the past. And that's really, really hard to do because those costs in the past are sunk. We can't get those back. We need to think about this point in time and say, okay, if we keep going on this from this point forward, are the added benefits greater than the added costs? This can be really hard to do. When you hear terms about people putting good money after bad, that's basically a sunk cost effect. When you hear in poker someone goes on tilt or puts to, keeps putting money into a pot that, that they can't win, that's usually a sunk cost effect example. And so these are things when these bigger decision-making processes are when we really want to think about them more formally and look forward into what the actual costs and benefits are at the margin. We also have problems with benefits in the future and costs today. So if the benefit that we're going to get is far away from the costs that we're putting in, that is a problem for us to make rational decisions. So the common example of this is a 401k retirement plan. And we know that we all should put money into the 401k or into some type of retirement plan so that we have a retirement plan. But the cost being 30 years out oftentimes and, the, and us putting the money in Today, we, we sometimes we forget we don't measure properly the cost-benefit analysis sometimes when we have this uh, long date between the cost being up front and the benefit being at some time in the future. This, again, is a place where some formal planning or some uh, other process being put in place would be helpful to us. One common example of this is just to have a, uh, your system to be set up to have it automatically taken out of your paycheck, of course. And if that's, if that's the case, then we don't have to make that choice all the time. We don't have to say every, every week or every year or however often we put the money into the retirement plan. We don't have to make the conscious choice. We just have it drawn out automatically, and that can make it a lot easier for us to do that, just have the habit of it uh, being put into that 401k plan. <music>